Hello and welcome to InfraDig, the podcast series run by IJ Global Infrastructure Journal, where we delve into the murky world of infrastructure and energy financing. Hopefully, a good number of you are chortling at the name of our podcast series, InfraDig, but for those of you who aren't, Google it. Anyone who is new to IJ Global and is tuning into our podcast for the first time, which is fair as this is only our second one, let me tell you a few things about IJ Global, me, your host for today, before introducing my first guest. IJ Global tracks developments around the world across the infrastructure and energy asset classes. We write daily news on everything from project finance deals through to M&A activity and infrastructure fund fundraising. We have a couple of vast databases as well, but that's enough about us. Me, I'm Angus Leslie Melville, Editorial Director for IJ Global and a couple of other titles in the Euromoney stable. As for the InfraDig podcast, here we talk to infrastructure and energy specialists on subjects in which they are expert. And today, we have just such a person to introduce. I have with me Dr. Tim Stone, CBE. Now, I've had the pleasure of knowing Tim for the last couple of decades, and he is, without question, one of the best-known figures in the infrastructure community in the UK and internationally. If you don't know Tim's pedigree and you've just finished Googling InfraDig, Wikipedia will tell you that Tim is a senior expert advisor with interests in infrastructure, finance, nuclear power, and water supply. He's a non-executive director of Arab Group, Horizon Nuclear Power, and a former senior expert on the board of the European Investment Bank. Possibly most important for the discussion that is to follow, Tim was appointed chair of the UK's Nuclear Industry Association in October 2018. And from a personal perspective, of course, his greatest accolade to date was to be granted in 2011 a Lifetime Achievement Award from IJ Global. Yes, that's a blatant plug for our own title, but an award that was well-deserved. So, Today, in this first podcast in a series with Tim as guest, we are focusing on the thorny issue of nuclear energy, working out what's happening right now in the UK and internationally, discussing a massive investment program that is to be delivered across the globe. Let's talk about the UK situation, which frankly, I find rather bemusing. In 2020, nuclear accounted for 16% of the UK's energy mix, down from 17% the year before. To make this possible, the UK has 13 nuclear reactors at six locations. Tim, tell us about the current status of the UK nuclear new build programme. Thank you, Angus. The UK's nuclear new build programme is a critical part of the UK's approach to dealing with net zero. So I'm going to answer the question in two parts, if I may. Firstly, the facts that you asked for, and then second, the bit that you didn't, which is the context. And we'll come on <laughs> to uh, context, because that's really quite scary and not well appreciated. So where we are at the moment is Hinkley Point C is being built down in Somerset by EDF, and they're using a reactor design, a French reactor design, which has been built and is operated successfully in China. Uh, where they built it jointly with uh, one of the Chinese nuclear companies. That project, um, and you can see it on the EDF website, is going pretty well. Uh, They're looking to then build another 
pair of reactors up at Sizewell on the coast in Suffolk, um, very close to the existing and frankly wonderful Sizewell B power station, which had been running for about 20 odd years, uh, and which just runs like clockwork. Um, and there is now, that's the big stuff going, but um, there's also Rolls-Royce, and Rolls-Royce have a long nuclear pedigree, as many people will realise. And they've been working on a smaller reactor uh, design, and very different in the way that it's built. It's a modular build. So it's built out of, blindly obviously says modules, but the idea <clears throat> is to replace all that physical activity on site with thousands and thousands of people with something which is more like assembly. And the analogue I'd give you, um, which is not very nuclear, is a typical Greenfield McDonald's, where they put down a concrete pad, and in one corner, water and power and um, sewage pipes come out. And then the building arrives on a truck, and the first wall is craned into the pad, where it clicks into the water, electricity and sewage connections, and then the other walls, as they're craned into place, link into that. And 48 hours later, they're frying chips. And it's how can we turn a big, massive physical construction process into something more like a, an assembly on-site process. And Rolls are making great progress there. Uh, they've just <clears throat> been given uh, about 220 million uh, sterling by the British government. They've raised another 220, 230 from a French investor. Um, the Qataris piled in with another 100. And as you'd expect with a name like Rolls-Royce, they're taking a very disciplined approach to building small reactors. Um, <clears throat> so that's the UK for the moment. There's another site up on Anglesey, a place called Wilver, where there is strong interest from Westinghouse and Bechtel to build their reactor, the Westinghouse reactor, the AP1000, which is being finished in, um, in the US. Same design, build it here, build it again. Um, but the penny has dropped and the mood has changed completely in the last three or four months, four or five months. And it's probably the most positive time I can remember in the last decade because the penny has dropped that nuclear is absolutely vital as one of the parts of dealing with net zero. So now for the context. In the UK, crudely speaking, <clears throat> about a fifth of the energy that we use comes from electricity and the other four-fifths comes from fossil. All of that four-fifths has to be replaced if we're going to hit net zero. So just pause with that one. We have to build four times the current electricity sector in terms of primary energy generation by 2050 to replace all the fossil stuff. But um, there's a bit more than that because the existing electricity sector, apart from that wonderful size will be, there is nothing operating today which will still be operating in 2050. So you've got to build all of it. So as an investment opportunity, as a jobs opportunity for all around the country, this is profound. And it's the scale of this that I don't think people have actually realised. The physical scale of this, the, the number of jobs, the tonnes of steel, the, the tonnes of concrete, the physical activity to rebuild all that primary energy is just profound. And it's, I think, probably the biggest thing that's happened to us since the Industrial Revolution, except that the pace and scale of what we have to do now is unlike anything we've ever seen before. We just have to build gigawatts a year and... Order of magnitude, and I will shut up and let you get a word in a second. <laughs> order of magnitude, um, to do this, we've got to build about 10 gigawatts of new low-carbon primary energy every single year from 2025 to 2050. Let's just get the scale of that for a minute. 10 gigawatts, for those of you who are not energy geeks, that's three lots of Hinkley Point C every year. If you convert it into wind turbines, the world's largest wind turbine, which is a beautiful bit of kit, which GE 
of design called the Halyard X, and the biggest one of those is 14 megawatts at the moment. That means about 720 of those, and to get the size of them, they're about the height of the Eiffel Tower. And they sit on floating platforms, otherwise known as small oil rigs. So you've got to build 720 of those things every year, or three Hinkley points, or some mixture. So this is no longer a case of silver bullets. It's basically anything that we can build that generates low carbon power. We have to build like it's going out of style, because 10 gigawatts a year is just a profound amount of build, of investment, of jobs. And we have to figure out how to do this as fast as possible in terms of gigawatts a year. It's not about pounds per megawatt hour. It's not the price. That's just a constraint. It's anything less than, let's say, 60 pounds a megawatt hour. Just build it. Just build it flat out. And the, the nuclear industry, the renewables guys, we, we're not competing at all. We're trying to help each other. Both contribute because, frankly, the only source of low-carbon primary energy are hydro, and the UK is terrible for that. There's tiny bits. It's nuclear, and it's electricity. End of. That is the, those are the sources of low-carbon primary energy. bit of geothermal, but at scale, it's wind, solar, and nuclear. End of. Everything else comes from that. So there we have it. The UK, masses of plans, um, an awful lot to do. Well, what's, what's the international picture looking like, Tim? Because your remit is um, far beyond these shores. It's, it's interesting. Beyond these shores, the penny is dropping at a rate of knots too. So if I go back four or five years, outside the UK, China was building, Russia and its, <clears throat> um, its aspiring territories were building. Um, not really anybody else. The Finns doing a bit, French thinking about it. But net zero has changed all that. So the Canadians are building, the Americans are now building. So in, in the US, Bill Gates' company TerraPower is building a nuclear project in Wyoming to replace an old coal plant and getting huge support for that. In Canada, Ontario Power Group has just um, agreed to build uh, the GE small boiling water reactor, an SMR. Um, in Estonia, they want to build Czech Republic, Poland, uh, the Dutch government not long since announced that they wanted to build at least two SMRs to get going, the Romanians, and so on. So the world has got it. Hungary, too, for example. Um, and it's really because of the, that, that point I made at the end of the previous um, comment, that there are very few sources of primary energy that are themselves low carbon. And nuclear is not only one of the few, but it's also one that's deployable, like really big offshore wind at scale. That's why the penny's dropped. And so it's gone from being a position where a few years ago there were very few countries looking to build nuclear. And so you know, the UK, for example, was sitting here saying, well, you know, we're open for business. Please, guys, come and compete. Now what's happening is the technologies are looking around the world, seeing lots of potential clients and starting to say, mm, yes, it's very interesting. We'd, we'd quite like to do business there, but why should we? And so one of the big issues at the moment now, if you want to attract investment into energy, into nuclear, you want to track the nuclear technology and the skills, is trust and confidence in the government. And it's in their um, commitment to making things happen, to supporting it. So, for example, one of the things that's special in the UK is permitting. It's a real pain in the neck. The whole DCO um, <coughs> development consent order process um, was not built for speed. So when EDF put in their planning application for Hinkley, um, I think it's 20,000 pages of submission and 30,000 pages of appendices. It might be the other way around. It doesn't matter. It's just a profound amount of paperwork. There are regulatory places in the world where the paperwork that accompanies 
the licensing or the certification of a pump weighs more than the pump. Yeah, this is just nuts. We have to think about how we streamline the whole process if we're going to crank out gigawatts a year. So around the world, um, the mood is very much more positive than it was even 18 months ago, even a year ago perhaps. And it's partly because of the, the rapidly growing realisation, partly thanks to the COP process, partly frankly thanks to the gas crisis, rattling people's cages and realising that we actually don't have sovereignty of supply, we don't have security supply, and we have to start thinking about this. Um, so around the world, it is also now a good time. And you'll see Rolls-Royce as they are polishing their designs to go into licensing and they're thinking about their international marketing. There's a lot of interest in that reactor design and small modular power station that they're now developing and uh, wanting to build and sell. Mm. A small nuclear reactor is SNR. That's something we're going to be talking about in the second uh, podcast of this series. So we'll go into more depth on that front. Um, and another thing, um, you know, for, for um, the, the listener, the date this was recorded is the 23rd of February 2022. Um, today, I was actually on the phone to somebody, a contact, I won't reveal who that was, of course, um, but he was talking to me about hydrogen. And in Saudi Arabia, um, there's a $9 billion green hydrogen hub. They're, they're out to the lenders at the moment. Um, that, that, that's quite a significant investment in hydrogen. And you did mention offshore wind farms as well. Um, well, you've got more in operation now, under construction and in planning. Goodness, there's a host of them out there. I suppose for, for me, the question has to be, um, with hydrogen coming online, goodness knows how it's all going to work, but we will be discussing that in our third podcast, and offshore wind coming online at the rate of megawatts. <laughs> um, is, is this possibly leapfrogging nuclear? No. It's interesting. The, you're quite right that hydrogen is, is potentially a very powerful part of the solution, but you have to make the hydrogen in the first place. And the question is, how do you make it? So there are basically three ways of, crudely three ways of doing it. You can take natural gas and cook it with steam over a catalyst, and you can split then the natural gas into hydrogen and CO2, and you then have to bury the CO2 using um, the CCS technology. Um, but the scale of this, you know, again, is potentially profound. It's a, an interesting route for the fossil industry to provide them a transition route out of just simply burning the stuff, but to something that's a bit more sensible. Um, but interestingly, the other way of making hydrogen is either with electricity, with electro electrolytical methods, where a bit like you do in high school science, where you stick a couple of carbon rods in some, uh, in some water and hydrogen comes off one of them and oxygen the other. You can do a much more sophisticated and uh, modern version of that using electricity, which is what you'd be using offshore wind for. So if you have excess offshore wind, you can use it to generate hydrogen. You'll store it then, and that then becomes an issue. But the other way of doing it is you can use nuclear power, either to generate the electricity, or with the higher temperature reactors, and you'll start to hear more about those later on this year, high temperature reactors that run at sort of five, six, seven hundred centigrade, maybe even eight, nine hundred centigrade, bit like the existing advanced gas cool reactors, which are the majority of the ones in the UK, you can use that high temperature uh, with a different type of, cat of catalyst to split the water into hydrogen and oxygen. And there's some work being done by the National Nuclear Labs on the different costs of different ways of 
producing hydrogen, whether the um, carbon capture and storage um, steam methane reforming, or electrolytic, or the thermochemical processes, that report will be out very soon. And I think we're going to find that nuclear and high temperature and electrolytically from nuclear is cost competitive with everything else. So the issue at the end is not about competition. It's about just the sheer scale of the energy. <clears throat> because if you think about replacing all the natural gas that goes down the gas pipes today with hydrogen, which, which you might want to do if you can make it work, that is a profound amount of hydrogen as well. So this is the scale of this is not something where anybody's going to sit there and say, oh, we, 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 can, just, we can just take over the world. We, we need all of it. And the real challenge for governments is to work out what is deliverable as quickly as possible now, what becomes even faster in future, but in a way that is the lowest cost to the national economy for our children and grandchildren. Because that's the scale of the decision, the time scale of the decisions that we're taking. And hydrogen is an important part of the process as a vector for energy, as a way of transporting it. But you don't get hydrogen out of the ground or out of the air. You have to make it from some other form of low-carbon primary energy. Or you take this, the um, natural gas and extract the hydrogen and then bury the CO2 that's wasted from that. But you can't emit that any longer in the way we do now. So we need an entirely different industry and an infrastructure to bury the CO2, to make hydrogen, to make cement, to make steel and so on. So there's some huge changes coming. But nuclear will be a big part of the answer. How much will just depend on how fast people can build and what can they build. Indeed. Um, Tim, we're going to leave it there, I think, um, because we, we, we're, we're approaching uh, the nuclear question across these three different podcasts. So, uh, And I like to keep these things as short as possible because nobody, everyone gets a little bit intimidated by an hour-long podcast. So, Tim, I'd really like to thank you for your time. It's been really interesting. Thanks so much. It's been great seeing you as well. Um, thank you, Lucas. It's been, been a treat. <laughs> it's splendid to see you. It's been, goodness, more than two years. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to our next two webinars, uh, webinars, sorry, I'm going old school on you, podcasts, uh, where we will again focus primarily on nuclear. We're going to be taking a look at the financing element and the impact of small nuclear reactor technology, um, which has been raised so often over the past few years, and we're starting to see some traction on this front. Uh, this will be followed by our final podcast in this series with Dr. Tim Stone that will see us look into advanced modular reactors and the role that will be played by hydrogen, already touched on here, and the holy grail for nuclear fusion. For now, thank you for joining us. Feel free to follow us on whatever platform you're using, and we'll be back next week with another InfraDig pod podcast that will primarily be on the role that SMRs will be playing. That's all for now. Keep infra digging. <laughs>